You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. On this episode, we're gonna be talking with a world-renowned gastroenterologist who's been in the field for 40 years, for four decades. And he's gonna be sharing some insights about the actual root of the gut-brain connection and the surprising way that this system actually works. Now, the enteric nervous system, this is often referred to as the second brain, if we're talking about the gut, i.e. the enteric nervous system. There's a vast array of neurotransmitters that are just permeating the gut and also being produced within the gut that are similar to what's happening in our brain. So it has that very obvious connection. But today you're going to learn how certain issues taking place in the gut, if you essentially go and cut that connection, a certain nerve connection from the gut to the brain, you can essentially cut off this manifestation of this disease in the gut. Is that a good thing? We're gonna talk about that as well. And we're also going to be talking about the science around gut feelings. Right? There's this very popular term in our culture, obviously, of gut feelings, but we're gonna talk about the science behind it. Is this a real thing? Is there any vital feedback that this can give us? Is there any way that we can possibly, if this thing is real, be able to cultivate and improve our gut feelings? So lots of good stuff to look forward to in this episode. And again, this is essential information that every single human being should have access to. And this is why we do what we do to be able to provide this information that oftentimes many of the things we're going to be talking about, this is cutting edge, publishing the most prestigious peer-reviewed journals, but the public at large will not get access or this will not be baked into popular culture for years, possibly you know, a decade plus before people actually know about this information. This is why mediums like this are so important. So make sure that you are subscribed to the Model Health Show on your favorite podcast platforms and also on YouTube. We have exclusive content there that we're releasing every single week. And it's just helping to really push this mission forward to where we have the very best people in their respective fields here featured on the show. And the impact and reach is slowly but surely starting to overtake, quote, major media. And this is so powerful because, again, if you look at the underlying mission and behavior patterns of popular media being a culture that's driven by fear and utilizing very primitive, manipulative tactics to disempower people in order to keep eyeballs, to disempower people, to instill fear in order to keep people hanging on every word and invested in their content. Whereas we're doing the reverse, we're putting the power back into your hands or reminding you that the power was always in your hands to begin with, with a modus operandi of empowerment. And so again, I'm just so excited about this and so excited about this time. And I'm very grateful for you being a part of it. Now in this conversation about the microbiome, of course, our special guest is going to emphasize the importance of diet and how it influences our microbial health and also our gut health overall. But the shift that can take place with our microbiome, how quickly it happens when you learn about that, it's probably going to blow your mind. And so with that said, our nutritional 
implementations, you know, our diet framework is going to have a huge impact on our gut health and our microbial cascade. Absolutely. And our overarching diet is clearly going to be the most dominant influence, but there are storied things that's been utilized for centuries, oftentimes thousands of years by our ancestors that are now proven to help to facilitate healthy microbial communities and to even help to shift and improve the dynamics of our microbiome, reducing things like dysbiosis that have become so normalized in our culture today. And one of my favorite things is a long-renowned fermented tea. In a recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nature Communications uncovered that there's a unique compound in this tea called Thea Brownin that has some really remarkable effects on our microbiome. This tea is called Pu'er. The researchers found that Thea Brownin positively alters our gut microbiota and directly reduces excessive liver fat. All right, so the creation of new fat also, and this being something called lipogenesis. Another study published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry found that Pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. Now, the key here is making sure that we're getting a high-quality source of Pu'er. And for me, this is going to be coming from Peak Teas. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E dot com forward slash model. You get 10% off all of their award-winning teas, including their cold extraction pu'er. Now, the cold extraction technology that they're utilizing, this is a patented technology, utilizes cold to low temperatures for up to eight hours to really extract all of the vital polyphenols and antioxidants. And our special guest is also going to mention uh, these phenols and how important they are. But being able to extract those compounds that we're really looking for, providing the very best concentration, plus they're doing a triple toxin screen for the highest level of purity. Because a lot of folks don't realize this, but teas are one of the most contaminated substances. There's so many valuable things to be able to get from teas, but the industry is just not very well regulated. So microplastics, pesticides, heavy metals, toxic molds, peak tea is really in a league of their own and being able to screen for those things to make sure you have the highest level of purity and all the good stuff that you're looking for. Again, go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com forward slash model for 10% off store wide. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Amazing Podcast for the Health Conscious by Vegan Egan. You don't come across people like Sean too often in the health and fitness space. Very objective, knowledgeable, and practical. Thank you for all that you do. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that over on Apple Podcasts. You put a huge smile on my face. I appreciate you immensely. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Emeryn Mayer, MD. And he's been studying the mind-brain-body interactions for the last 40 years with particular emphasis on the bi-directional communication between the brain and the gut and its microbiome. He's the executive director of the Oppenheimer Center for Stress and Resilience and the co-director of the Digestive Diseases Research Center at UCLA. He's the author of more than 300 scientific publications, 
and also two best-selling books as well, The Mind-Gut Connection and The Gut-Immune Connection. He's appeared in a variety of major media outlets, including NPR, PBS, and also in the documentary In Search of Balance. And his work has been featured in Scientific American, Time Magazine, The New York Times, and many other outlets. And now he's back here on the Model Health Show to share his brilliance. Let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Dr. Emeryn Mayer. We have a legend here in the Model Health studio. <laughs> Dr. Emeryn Mayer, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here again. Yes, it's, it's always great talking with you. Always so insightful. I would love to start with literally going from top to bottom and detailing what are some of the nuts and bolts ways that the brain is literally connected to the gut? How does that interaction really work? So the fact that it does work has a lot to do with evolution because um, in evolution, we started out with, or you know, organisms started out with a floating digestive tube with some nerves wrapped around that tube. So that was our first nervous system. And it took care of both contractions of the gut, regulation of the but also, uh, you know, fight and flight response and, and digestion. So everything was in this one very primitive nervous system. Then as, as animals evolved and developed a polar brain that then started to take care of the things around us, you know, the, not just digestion, there was a division of labor. Some stuff stayed in the gut, became the so-called enteric nervous system or little brain of the gut, or it's also called the second brain, even though it was the first brain, and our central nervous system that took care of everything else. And obviously, even though there was a division of labor, they stayed very closely connected, those two systems. So it's almost like you can say these are not separate entities. You know, it's part of the same theme of regulation of complex functions. So now when, when does the brain have to sort of talk to the gut? Anything that happens in the gut, the contractions, the digestions, the secretion of fluids, the absorption, is actually taken care of by our ancient system, the enteric nervous system. As long as things go normal, if something go get out of balance with the with the whole person, the organism, then the brain kicks in and tells the little brain in the gut, you know, you need to change that. So that happens with under stress, during different emotions. So you know we can almost say that every emotion that we perceive consciously, or even those that go on without our conscious awareness, they have a mirror image in the gut because the brain sends that information to the gut and adjusts the gut's function to that emotion. So if you're angry, essentially the brain creates a different baseline in your gut, not a good one for your digestion. Same when you're anxious. If you're in a fight and flight situation, very severe stress, then what's good for the body overall is that you empty the gut so no calories are needed to run digestion and all the energy goes to the, your skeletal muscle um, to run away or to fight. So you want to, you know, sounds kind of gross, but you want to empty the upper part through vomiting, or nausea and vomiting, you want to empty the lower parts through diarrhea. So that's a classical... What if both are happening at the same time? Dr. Yeah, that, and that does happen. You know, I have patients. So if that fight and flight response is triggered inappropriately, because very few people have to run away from a, from a tiger, you know, 
uh, even though it does happen, like the recent story from India where this tiger ate nine people. Oh um, my gosh. <laughs> or, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> no big oh deal. my gosh. But so this fight and flight response is still triggered inappropriately. You know, yeah. if you have a lower threshold, so this whole stress responsiveness, which is highly variable between people, then these signals from the brain to, to the gut, you know, have that effect. Now, we talked a lot about the top down. There's also the bottom up. Right. So this came up, uh, you know, when, when I started my training and research decades ago, it was found that, the, so there was a lot of interest in, in the vagus nerve, the function of the vagus nerve, mainly because the vagus nerve played a big role in peptic ulcer disease. And mm -hmm. surgeons found out if you cut the vagus nerve, then, you know, that's a dramatic but effective treatment for recurrent chronic peptic ulcer disease. I mean, obviously, we, we no longer think of, we no longer do this today, but a lot of research went into the vagus and it became clear 90% of the fibers of this nerve that innervates every cell in your gut goes to the brain, from the gut to the brain, 90%. Only 10% mediate these signals we talked about earlier, the fight and flight response or the emotions. So the question that was not answered at the time is, why do we need 90% of this capacity send signals to the brain? So today we know it's a lot of stuff happening in the brain that, in, in the gut that the brain needs to know. For example, with a simple thing, if we have eaten a meal and we feel full and satiated, that's a signal generated by cells in the gut and transmitted by the vagus nerve to the brain. But now we have the microbes. We have 40 trillion microbes, and they produce all kinds of things and interact with virtually all the cells in the gut, including these satiety hormone-containing cells. So now we have an explanation why we need such a complex communication system bottom up from the gut to the brain. And we're still trying to figure out, you know, what goes on in these, in, 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 in these pathways. Because I would say in terms of the microbiome signaling to the brain, we're still in its infancy. You know, there's millions of genes that express certain things. Only a few of those, we know what they are, what molecules they are, and we know even less of what they do. So brain-gut communication, summarize that, is a circular system. The brain always talks to the gut, and the gut always talks to the brain. And it's a circular communication that, um, so I don't call it a brain-gut axis, but really a brain-gut system, you know, where we have to apply systems biology, network science to understand it. It's, it's not a simple linear thing. You know, you have this one nutrient entering the gut and then something happens. It's, it's always like in that circular motion. And that's why it's, why it's been difficult to come up with, with medications or interference with that. We can imagine, you figure out what 40 trillion microbes have to tell the brain. Mm. And now you figure out what's wrong in a disease, complex disease like depression or Alzheimer's or autism spectrum. Like we got a magic bullet. Yeah, and that's probably not a magic bullet. It's it's probably you have to you have to have a combination of things. You know, right. magic bullet is that's that's idiocy to think that you could have that. The magic bullet approach, you know, that worked for the peptic ulcer, but that was one of the few things. But even with that, that's that's exactly the thing I was going to mention. 
there's a reason that that occurrence was happening, right? And this is something you just turn on a light bulb in my mind. Like I never thought about this. Cut, by cutting that nerve, which you said is a very effective means for treating that condition. The question is why? If the brain is in this connection between the brain and the gut, obviously stress and or other emotional components, you know, stuff going on was contributing to this outcome in the gut. And so basically you're just cutting off that stress signal in a sense. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and there's another example from, from the peptide also, you know, uh, H. pylori was discovered. Right, yeah. And then people said, oh, so we no longer need to, there was a lot of research going on at the time, it was early on in my career, what we were interested in the effect of stress on in peptic ulcer, you know, in, in the start and in the flare-up. And the minute H. pylori was detected uh, or identified, and then it could be eradicated by with an antibiotic, that entire interest in any other factors stopped. And it's very interesting because there's lots of studies. So stress still plays a big role. And I'm surprised, well, it's because, you know, H. pylori is a big moneymaker. You don't, industry is not interested in pursuing this in any way further. But people that had H. pylori, the majority of whom, this was one of the most common in, uh, infections. Most humans and certainly our ancestors all had H. pylori and it has, you know, it had benefits for us. It, this was a, a synergistic relationship. So studies show, the early studies showed that the majority of patients with H. pylori do not develop an ulcer, and the factor that determines that high-risk population are the ones with the stress. So stress needed the, the, the precondition right. of, the, of, the, of the, the microorganism to create the ulcer, you know, and, um, but obviously nobody would go into therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy for an ulcer treatment. It's just, uh, and what we've ended up with, you know, this is, the, the side effect of this um, limited approach or this linear approach. So we eradicated H. pylori. There's some people, even the people that were pioneers in that research field are now, you know, saying this was not a good idea because the, the, the interaction with H. pylori trained our immune system early on in getting rid of this training is one of the reasons why we have an increased rate of, of um, uh, allergic disorders and, right. you know, and um, autoimmune disorders. Yeah, skyrocketing. Skyrocketed, years, yeah. and it's surprising to me, nobody brings that up with H. pylori. We're still happy, the medical system, totally happy with that approach, you know, and now in the US, for example, it's almost completely eradicated. And we have one of the highest rates of, of, of these autoimmune diseases and, um, I mean, there's obviously other factors, like we also throw antibiotics for other reasons at young children yeah. doing even, the same thing. Even for viral conditions. Yeah. yeah it's for not uncommon. So we have essentially taken away that whole, you, you could say, like the, the, the university or the training system for our immune system by throwing, by killing all these microorganisms early on in life. Yeah. There's no opportunity to differentiate between something harmful and non-harmful. Yeah, this goes back to that network theme that you were talking about earlier. When I said the term, for example, magic bullet, it's, it's seeing the effectiveness of, let's go ahead and destroy H. pylori without understanding how it's affecting the entire network. Yeah, exactly. Or going in and snipping that vagus nerve and getting this one result, not understanding how it's influencing the whole network. 
And when you mentioned earlier, you mentioned millions of genes. You're referring to our bacterial genes, right? So we've got you know, trillions of bacteria. They have genes too. So no, this going, is, yeah, this is what I meant. So yeah. we humans have 20,000 genes, which is almost nothing compared to the, the microbial gene pool, you know, which is in the millions. So most of our genes are not human. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, there used to be in the beginning of this field, people always emphasize we have 10 times more microbial cells than human cells. I mean, that is no longer true. It's about the same number. But in terms of the comparison of the, at the gene level, it's even more extreme, you know, a hundred times, several hundred times more genes than, uh, you know, microbial genes than human genes. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And, it's, and, there, and it, all of this is interacting because we're talking about epigenetics and how those conditions for our bacteria are influencing what our human genes are doing. Yeah, so this, um, you know, this is the topic that I that I'd mentioned to you. So I recently, I mean, I've had a long dialogue with this colleague of mine, uh, Steve Cole, at professor at UCLA, genius. And, and he has created this field of uh, social genomics. And in a nutshell, what he, so th this is different from epigenetics. Epigenetics means you change the gene expression profile of, you know, permanently or for a long time, something happens early in life and that, then that gene functions different than if that had not happened with a configuration um, that stays. Now, what, what Steve has shown is that conditions at different network levels. So, you know, he looks at social networks, our social interactions. He looks at networks of human cells, then networks of genes, networks of microbes. So you have to imagine these are like levels, different levels. But what he has shown that there's this, this integrative interaction of all these networks. Mm -hmm. So it's complex at, uh, at each level. It's, but then this interacts all the way down to the microbes. So something happens in your social network, such as uh, Nia studied this social isolation, even the sense of happiness. You know, there's this eudaimonic happiness when you do something for others or do something with a higher purpose as opposed to your own satisfaction of your you know materialistic wishes that that has a different effect top down on this on on uh, on your gene network that creates a gene network that is beneficial for your body for your function so health health is determined by what what what's trickles down from, from the top to the bottom and subtle things like this i mean so, so many people in particularly in the u.s happiness is material things you know they've done studies to compare that happiness with the eudaimonic happiness and the the, the material the satisfaction of material needs and wishes has no positive effect on your on, on your gene expression pattern whereas the eudaimonic one has a very strong effect They've also shown that, for example, meditation and mindfulness and compassion in, in very sophisticated studies that all these have an effect on, this, on these gene networks, which then affect health outcomes. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating science where you can measure. I mean, you know, people have always sort of said that, yeah, if you do good things for others, it's, it's good for your health, but that you can actually measure this now at the 
the genomic level is, is amazing at the molecular level, you know? Yeah, it's very exciting. And, you know, this is the thing that I love about being alive today. You know, we have scientific method to affirm, you know, certain things that we know, we, we experientially know to be true, but we're able to affirm that with science. And then that starts to bake itself into healthcare. Eventually, it takes a long time, you know, for healthcare to change and integrate some of these new findings. But this is a great transition into longevity. And that equation, if we're looking at the places around the world where people are living the longest, but not just their lifespan, but their health span. Mm -hmm. And we see, obviously, there's a variety of different diets. There are principles, of course, tenets of real food, movement patterns, but those things are not in a silo. The overarching thing that just tends to stand out in the research is the social interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, talking about networks, you know, so you could almost say lifestyle networks, healthy lifestyle networks. It's, it's, it's not the one thing. So, and again, in science, we've, we focus on one thing. We focus on diet, a huge epidemiological study. You know, if people that are on a Mediterranean diet, do they live five years longer than, than those that, you know, are the standard American diet? I mean, that's kind of interesting, but it, it does not really relate to reality because in places like in these blue zones and, you know, uh, Sardinia, this interaction of of their of their genes with their lifestyle with their 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 mindsets you know what in which way are they happy are they these these eudaimonic you know happiness principles or um and all these interacts uh, interact and probably contribute i would say relatively small individual percentages you know i don't think as as we now you know with all the chatter on the internet and and then the, the commercial interests that jump on it that you know you have this supplement and the supplement gives you five five more years of <laughs> of, of, of healthy living it is absolutely ridiculous you know and and there are these examples I I mentioned to you you know before sort of been intrigued by if if you if you look at obituaries and shoot. You don't do this when you're younger, but you know, at a certain age, it's sort of it's it's kind of interesting um, that a, a lot of people that were familiar names when you grew up, musicians, artists, so all of a sudden, you know, they they pass away. And what I've noticed that a lot of people pass away at fairly high ages, you know, ninety six, even a hundred, and for some people, it's probably not not a coincidence. Um, but I doubt that the majority, of, like you never read this, that I doubt that the majority of these people practice the kind of lifestyle that we promote today, you know, with the exercise, daily exercise and, you know, the, the meditation. Yeah, the alcohol. alcohol. The, yeah. Most of them have never done that. You know, they may even have be overweight. So you really question, I mean, wh what is it that ultimately, so you could be, Person said it's it's all in the genes, you know. So some people say in Sardinia, this is a, a different gene pool, you know, and they've always lived into old age, and doesn't really matter what they do. Um, I mean, I I once my young days backpacked through Ecuador, and we went to a place that was written up in the National Geographic as this place with the oldest people in the world. You know, this was long before the blue zone concept. And so a friend of mine and myself, we went there and 
we visited these people that lived in a very simple village and and then we spent a week with them and saw how they lived and they worked hard. Um, they demonstrated to us. They still brought in firewood, even though they were 98 years old. Very simple life, you know, and and, and it sort of made sense. Yeah, so with this clear water, you know. But then what happened, like 20 years later, I I read on, I read up about this, this village again. And there's no more longevity. So a lot of hotels have moved in. And it's been completely westernized and modernized and the modern lifestyle has moved in mm. and these old people have finally passed away and the longevity has gone way down you know it's become the average so it wasn't the location it wasn't the water it wasn't it was the overall you know complex lifestyle that right. these people had right that i this is one of the things that we tend to do we have our cognitive biases, especially when something starts to work for us and we start to kind of put all of our eggs in one basket. And the truth is, it's, it's a complex thing. You know, there are certain inputs that our genes require, like they, you know, expect from us. And if any of those things are missing, what we tend to do is we get really good at one thing, for example, like we're really about our exercise. But if you're not minding your sleep quality, for example, the system is going to break somewhere because it's just, it's an input that's expected. And so having that complex, as you mentioned, but most importantly, I think because our culture is the way that it is today, particularly here in America, where we're missing this social component, where again, it is arguably the biggest driver, one of the biggest drivers of our health outcomes. And now we're so separate. We evolved in tribes, mm. we evolved in community, and it went from, you know, that to, you know, neighborhoods. But even then, you know, neighborhoods would work together. Everybody would know it. Now it's just like, you don't know anybody. As a matter of fact, don't talk to me. <laughs> you know, if your neighbor, you know, comes walking by, you know, it's a, it's a sketchy situation today. You know it's, what I mean? It's, yeah, it's very strange. So we're very, and also even with our own core family, you know, we, our families tend to get separated as well. We don't have the, the dynamic and the different generations working together. And, you know, these are things kind of even just seeing the last couple of years, we've seen in some cases a resurgence of the family interconnectedness and another value placement on those relationships. So I'm hoping that's a leverage point to get people back connected with friends and family in a whole new way, in an intentional way. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, a, it's, um, it's also, you know, came up in these conversations with um, with with Steve Cole is that you know evolution obviously always um, has come up with solutions tested you know over millions of years about their effectiveness for survival of the species and so the two things that influence our gene expression patterns in a positive way one is social interactions and the other one is this um, doing something for the good of others and if you look at the, the two human areas where that is happening. So we take care of our children, you know, with, we put in all the energy. So this is one of those activities clearly that is, uh, has been selected and reinforced by evolution. And it, I'm not sure if there are studies on that, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm certain that's one of the triggers for a gene expression pattern that's health promoting, yes. taking care of 
somebody else, not yourself. And the other one is, you know, living in social communities. And um, the, the social community part, I think, is under threat. It's hard to say that at the moment, what the outcome will be. I mean, you have this, you know, you have the metaverse on the one side, <laughs> right. which, which is, I just recently read this article of, by a New York Times reporter who spent, I think, 48 hours in the metaverse mm. and describes the insanity in that space. And, you know, a young guy basically ran into in the metaverse saying he spent the last 10 hours lying in bed and, and, and you know, visiting people. And so the question is, can we fool evolution? And, and, and does our brain think that's a social connectedness? Or is that a complete breakdown of the, the social connectedness that we are programmed for, you know? You already know. You already know, Dr. Mayer, you know. <laughs> but, you know, again, here's the thing. It's, it's, it is. There's, we can't stop what's already unfolding with technology and with that kind of integration pattern. But what we can do is like fortify the education on how important it is to not live in the metaverse and the degradation because evolution takes time. Evolution takes time. And that input, there, we do have sprinklings of data about you know, gaming and things like that. And we see beneficial components with this, like you know, hand-eye coordination with you know, uh, helping to modulate stress if you're happy gaming, yeah, 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 right? I just saw a study recently on that. It's your disposition when doing the thing, you know, coming into it, your mindset. And if we don't have a healthy association with how to manage our own minds and also healthy social connection, because what tends to happen, even if you're gaming, you're getting pissed off with somebody you don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah right? Yeah. On the other side of who knows where, and there's that it's missing a vital dynamic in a, in a relationship context that we evolve having, being able to pay attention to nonverbal cues yeah, yeah. and being able to see facial expressions and to mirror, because there's actually a really great study out of Princeton and they found that two people getting together and just building some rapport that our brains start to sync up. You know, our brain mm -hmm. patterns just kind of start to mirror each other. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that even in the, in the realm of like psychology of mirroring mm -hmm. in order to create rapport. We naturally do that, mm -hmm. you know? And so pulling these pieces out, of course, is gonna be huge gaps in functioning and doing it so quickly is what's scary. Yeah, the speed is one of the main things. So, you know, sort of quickly reflecting back on the microbiome. So the microbes have these, you know, hundreds of millions of genes. That's their biggest strength and they can adapt because of that much faster to changes in the environment. So you can change your diet tomorrow, and, you know, go from a vegetarian to a standard American diet, and your microbiome will change within 48 hours. So it was this pivotal study on that. Now, our human genes cannot. So now, all of a sudden, these microbes are processing this new food, new type of food, generate metabolites that our immune system and our nervous system has not, not seen before. And it will take you know, probably 10,000 years before our, our genes really change. Like they, they can be modified what they express, but not the genes itself, uh, themselves. So you get this mismatch. And um, I personally think a big problem is technology and lifestyle as changes have moved so fast 
that um, our genetic machinery has not been able to adapt to that, you know, they, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that it's beneficial for us. So you have these, these mismatches, and the mismatch is essentially rings the alarm bell for your immune system. Something is wrong. It doesn't, um, and, you know, it's very not a coincidence that we have this inappropriate activation of our immune system underlying now most of the chronic diseases of of the last 75 years it's an epidemic you know and i think it has a lot to do i mean and it's still you know you have to prove it scientifically and it has a lot to do with the tif- different time scales that our systems can adapt microbes very fast but then generating something that the rest of the body is not familiar with and doesn't feel comfortable with the immune system also can adapt quickly, but not fast enough to recognize that it doesn't need to ring the alarm bells. You know, it's, it's not, we're not threatened if, if our microbes, if you switch from one food type to another, that it's something really dangerous. But um, so, so you can see in our conversation, you know, we, we switch on these different levels of, of these networks yeah. that I talked about earlier. We, we go from the social to the, you know, to the, the, the health, the body, the genes, the microbes. And I think a lot of the explanations of what goes on with us as humans, it's a good way to do this in, in this way. Not say at one level, but see the connections and see, characterize the system's properties. It's kind of a whole new way of looking at medicine, you know? Yeah. Systems medicine. What, what are these, how are these systems coordinated and what have we done to Threw them out of balance. Yeah. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. There's a natural ebb and flow of our body temperature throughout the day. And through our evolution, there's a natural drop in our core body temperature at night to help us to facilitate sleep. Certain hormones are released, certain enzymatic processes for repair, certain things change in our brain when our body temperature is going down in the evening in association with the nocturnal pattern of life itself here on Earth. When things start to get darker, our core body temperature goes down. It's how we evolved. Now, today we can throw a glorified monkey wrench into that natural process. And what the research indicates is that one of the primary things that's underlying insomnia is an inability for our body temperature to be regulated. Specifically in the evening, we're seeing folks with chronic sleep issues having a much higher core body temperature at night. And this was highlighted by a study that was published in the American Journal of Physiology. Now, a new study with this in mind was just conducted and it included 32 participants and they were recruited into a three-week clinical trial to see if supporting thermoregulation with their bedding can help to improve their sleep quality. Now, the researchers took subjective and objective data monitoring their sleep with devices to see the impact of their sleep conditions. And so the researchers utilize some bamboo lyocell sheets that support thermal regulation, that are antimicrobial, that are moisture wicking. And they found that by sleeping on these sheets, the study participants had a 1.5% improvement in their sleep efficiency. What does that mean? What does that equate to? That's equating to an additional 7.2 more minutes of restorative sleep per night. 
Now, what if we stretch that out? We're talking 43 extra hours of sleep per year. They're still doing the same activity, still in the same bed, but not getting optimal sleep. There's a difference between getting restorative sleep and just being unconscious or just being in the bed. This simple thing, just what we're sleeping on, can improve our sleep quality. By the way, subjectively, so that was the objective data, subjectively, the participants found that their mental alertness during the day following sleeping on these sheets improved by 25%. And overall, 94% of people prefer sleeping on these sheets versus whatever else they were doing before that. Now, these sheets are from Etitude, and these are my favorite. I love these sheets so much. I didn't know that this was even a thing. I didn't know that this existed, that this mattered so much. But once you sleep on these sheets, you truly understand why. They're free from harmful chemicals, irritants, allergens, they're hypoallergenic, and also they're self-deodorizing, they inhibit bacterial growth, they're breathable, moisture wicking also supports thermal regulation, but something truly special because I love these sheets so much, I actually reached out and connected with these folks and I got a 15% off discount for our audience here. So go to attitude.com forward slash model. That's E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E.com forward slash model. Use the code model15 at checkout. and Get yourself some of these incredible sheets. And these are a great gift as well, by the way. I get these sheets for friends all the time. I love them so much. And also they're giving you a 30 night sleep trial. So you get the opportunity to sleep on them, think on them, dream on them. If you don't love them, just simply send them back for a full refund. Go to attitude.com forward slash model. Again, that's E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E.com forward slash model. Use the code model15 altogether at checkout for 15% off. Now back to the show. It's a very sobering point to think about because, of course, we, we see the surface thing, which is we're eating a high percentage of ultra-processed foods in our diet today. Uh, according to the BMJ, right around 60% of the average American's diet is ultra-processed foods. So the surface thing is like, okay, we're creating hormonal dysfunction. We're making our tissues out of really questionable materials. What we're not talking about, and this is that sobering point, is that we're literally altering our microbiome. We're changing the, the soil in which our health is kind of springing from. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is so remarkable. But the good news is it's, it's, it's as far as anything else in our sphere of health, it's the quickest thing we can alter in a positive direction as well. Now, my question would be, if you think about the breakdown products of the processed food, right? So like the, you know, endotoxemia mm -hmm, mm -hmm. potential here with the interaction, because it's not just what we're feeding our human cells, but we're feeding our microbes and the byproducts. Could those things also be making us sick? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly this, this category of, so when the microbes have different sources for what they produce, so, you know, a big one is the food, obviously, and whatever is in the food, the, the you know, chemicals. And um, there's another one that comes from our body, like hormones are secreted into the gut and then the microbes process them and modify them. And many of them are being reabsorbed, like estrogen or, or, um, or testosterone. It goes through this circular motion 
first it works in the body, then it's excreted in the bile. It goes to the microbes, the microbes change it. A lot of it is excreted in our stool, but a significant portion is reabsorbed and goes back into our, our system. That's the second source. And then there's, um, there's another source, which, you know, which, which are chemicals that our microbes have never seen in evolution, and a huge amount of stuff, from plastic particles to you know, what's, what's in the air, what's in the water. Um, and those, I don't think we fully understand what secondary products are generated from, from, the, from the metabolism, what the microbes do. Because don't, don't our bacteria make waste as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a good, good example is this whole glyphosate story, you know, that, yeah. that we don't have the enzymatic machinery to, to convert this into an absorbable form, but, but the microbes do. And so all the studies on the health effects on glyphosate were done on cell cultures, isolated cells. So those negative effects have never really been studied. And I think the industry has done Monsanto and now Bayer putting a tremendous amount of effort into suppressing and preventing this kind of research that you see. I've, I've not seen any paper, quite honestly, and, and maybe I don't read these kind of specialized, you know, toxicity journals or publications. What the, the metabolic products uh, of glyphosate or other pesticides or insecticides, what they are and then what they do in our human cells. From, from what I've seen, so this has been looked at in the context of Parkinson's disease. You know, the Central Valley is a sort of an uh, epidemic center for Parkinson's disease because the insecticides and the pesticides being sprayed constantly. The fact that this is still allowed is, is unbelievable. You know, it's obviously the biggest supplier of vegetables and, and, and fruits in the country. And that's for the reason why this kind of research is being, you know, suppressed. But I've, I've seen patients myself, you know, who grew up in the Central Valley and developed Parkinson's or all kinds of strange neurological diseases. And the only test that these, all these chemicals had to undergo was in the test tube of isolated cells. And it seemed safe in that because uh, these isolated human cells do not have the machinery and the genes to break those down into other toxic compounds, but it's, it's becoming apparent that the microbes do, you know, and the, and the microbes will, in that case, generate something that's not good for us. Part of the problem, obviously, is the onus is on us because with the manufacturer, they can create the structure in which they prove safety, but the onus is on us to try to prove that it's not safe or that it's harmful. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really on the population and so much fallout takes place. And you know, we're talking about, you know, with Monsanto, we're getting into, you know, multi-billion dollar entity. And if something is doing well with the, you know, the bottom line is so integrated in the culture, they're not going to be willing to exactly. just stop exactly. doing the thing, you know, their hand, it has to be forced. And so, you know, right now, as you mentioned, the data, even something like chlorpyrifos is another one and known carcinogen, uh, rampant issues with birth defects and miscarriages, the list goes on and on and on. And well noted to be dangerous, also agreed upon in the scientific community, but is caught up in red tape. It was gonna be pulled off the market 
uh, recently, just a couple of years ago, but there was like some other litigation came into play, you know, and it's just kind of caught up in red tape and it's still out on the market mm. doing harm, something that we know is dangerous. And this is the world that we live in, literally, because you mentioned, you know, even our air, there are billions of tons of newly concocted uh, chemicals, you mm. know, tens of thousands of different ones mm. put into our environment every year. And a lot of this, you know, we have the EPA. The EPA is putting out these stats, by the way. It's generally where I go. And they're sharing these statistics. Like, are you, are you guys not checking this stuff out? Like, how are there like 40,000 new chemical complexes that are released into the environment in the last decade? Like, how is that even possible? Yeah, and a good example, an extreme example, you know, the EPA obviously has done a great job in many ways, but a good example of how commercial and corporate interests hate that kind of investigation is what you saw under you know the last administration that basically tried to shut down the epa you know and mm -hmm. uh, you would think why would anybody in the in the world in this day and age do this well because it's huge commercial interests that are at stake here you know right big funding for our government it's like integrated yeah, yeah. as well yeah you got to keep that in mind you know something that you mentioned uh, earlier on it, it might be one of the most fascinating things and you talked about how our emotions are expressed in our gut, in a sense. And it just got me thinking about the concept of gut feelings, right? So our gut feelings are a real thing. Yeah, the term gut feeling, it's used very often. I mean, once you sort of become aware of that term, you know, when I wrote my first book, I saw it five times a day, you know, different politicians, um, athletes, everybody talked about that gut based on my gut feelings. And, and there's sort of different way to understand that term because it's, it's not used just for a single purpose. So gut feelings, butterflies in your stomach on your first date, for example, that's a simple one, you know, and that's something that, that happens acutely. So you're in a situation, it starts in the brain, it goes down, it affects your gut contractions, uh, it probably affects your microbes, it feeds back to the brain through the vagus nerve, and everybody has experienced that. So that's a common one. Others, a lot of patients that I, that I see, they knew that when they're angry, their stomach goes into knots. It's, another, it's a negative gut feeling. I mean, the ones with the, the butterflies can be a good and a positive one. If you have to give a speech somewhere, some people get butterflies because of the worry. If you fall in love, it's a positive one. But it's, it's an emotional arousal. It's a very simple one. It gets more complicated when you get into this making decisions based on your gut feelings. That's a tough one because, um, you know, again, a lot of people have done that, including myself, and being stuck with nearly impossible decision processes. And, you know, you made your lists of positive and negative sides, and you just cannot come up with a decision. It seems impossible. And then you do something. You go on a walk or you go to the beach or, you know, uh, and said, okay, now I'm just going to make this decision, and it, you make it spontaneously. No longer going to these lists and looking at it, but you make it spontaneously. And a lot of times it's positive. Now, there have been reports, uh, or uh, not, uh, not reports, but you know, I think it's even books written about this. It can also be dangerous. So if, you're, if, your, system, if your brain is biased, for example, to be extremely anxious, you've always been anxious of things, so you're going to make that gut-based decision based on your underlying trait, anxiety, 
which is not always the best way to make those. So the, the, the idea that I came up with is when you make a gut-based decision, you can make it instantly, just like a, a Google search, you know, even while you're typing, the answer is already there. And it sort of draws on this enormous body of, of memories that you have encoded uh, over your lifetime of both positive and negative ones, not just the emotional aspect also, but also the, the gut part of it. You know, was this associated with a certain gut sensation? And your brain has the ability to access that database, that vast database, just like a Google search can. Mm -hmm. um, how it does that and you know what systems in the brain can do this it's not known but it it has a lot of similarities you know the so the speed and not the, a non-linear process the dilemma then is can you recommend everybody to make gut-based decisions I, I would say no you know if you <laughs> if you had a lot of trauma when you were young you yeah. know you're not going to make the best decisions for your life now same thing if you have genetic predisposition to anxiety, you know, risk genes, you probably don't make it. So I've sort of moved to this. This is actually a skill that you should learn. You know, you should, you should be aware of um, what your biases are to this decision making. And some people do it by paying attention to their dreams. You can, I mean, I've done this for several years in the Jungian analysis. Extremely helpful that you learn who, what's actually goes on inside of your unconscious and then make your decisions based on how you got to know yourself in, in terms of these deeper layers. So I, I wouldn't recommend it to everybody make a gut-based decision, but I would recommend to everybody to try to learn how do you do that, you know? Yeah. And uh, some people are obviously masters, you know, they make always the right business decision, even though, I mean, you look at the information right now that's available, all these business news and predictions and uh, what people, business insider and the stock market and the comments, essentially it's impossible to make a linear decision, but then there's individuals who have always made the right investment decisions. That, that's in some ways a gut-based decision. It cannot, you know, the, and I mean, there was this book by, um, I'm his name now, the, the Black Swan, you know, this, this former um, Wall Street guy, who basically came to the conclusion, you cannot make these predictions. Uh, the system is so complex that, yeah, you can, after the after a decision happened, you can interpret it and say, oh, yeah, I, I knew this, but you didn't know it. You know, there's a lot of people pretend they knew it. But so every time we deal with these complex systems, I think always comes out to the same conclusion. You can't use your linear, simple brain that served us for hundreds of thousands of years in a simple world, you cannot use that the same way in, in, in the complexity of today where everything has to be understood in terms of systems and your decisions and actions and behavior based on that. So in, in essence, we do have these gut feelings and we need to develop accurate assessment of these gut feelings and be aware of our biases and things like that. And so I want to ask you, have you ever had a gut feeling about something that you shouldn't do and you did it anyways, and then you regretted it? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So I've also described a few situations in my first book, The Mind-Gut Connection, 
career choices, which has always been extremely difficult for me. So I, I've, I didn't know that I was going to go to medical school, didn't know what specialty, you know, didn't know if I should stay in Germany or should come to the U.S. And I've gotten pretty good when I look back. I always made the right decisions it's in retrospect. And not by listening to other people, not by these plus minus lists, but really listen to my gut feelings. And I remember a few situations really well. But then there, there have been other decisions, you know, were um, in relationships, um, just gone through a recent decision, which I'm still not over with, inherited the house of my parents in a beautiful area of southern Germany and in the Alps. So the, the, the rational decision made all these lists, you know, got these big whiteboards all over our, our, our house with the plus and minuses and asked a lot of people. And, and then at the end, I thought, okay, it's, it's obvious the renovation of this house would cost so much money and I would have to be there. It only makes sense if I move there and live there. And so I made a decision, okay, let's sell it. And I'm, I'm still not over it. It was such a shock. So we, mm. we did sell it. And the first time we went back, I fell in a deep state of depression. You know, mm. for, for weeks, we, we, we came back from this visit and said, God, it's the first time I made a really big mistake in my life. Mm. I didn't go by my gut feelings, which told me to hang on to it. So I'm still hoping that the, the, the turn of events will show me at some point, actually, it was good. It was just... In interim's impression was it was not the best idea, but this was a decision not based on gut feelings for me. Yeah, and um, very painful. I mean, it's, it's two years later, and it's still not over that. You know. Yeah, that's. You, we were just talking about this before the show. You know, there's a, a a new film out. It's called Medicating Normal, right? And you, you know, those feelings that you're experiencing are normal feelings. And there is a variety of ways, of course, to process those things. And some things we really just don't ever get over. And it's being able to integrate with those things and, you know, finding a way to move forward. Because here's the thing too, even in these moments when, you know, we have that gut feeling and we make the other decision, it tends to teach us something, yeah, you know, yeah. if we're open to it, you know, but we, we can try and suppress that or lie to ourselves. And I'm grateful. Thank you for sharing that because just, you know, expressing that honesty about that decision. And, you know, I, I always loved the concept of intuition aligning with science in a way that it's advanced pattern recognition, you know, and that our, our brain, our gut is sensing and giving us feedback and it's integrating into this feeling that we have. And it's based on our experience, our perceptions, our accumulated knowledge. And hopefully we have accumulated some knowledge to be able to, to have that. But then there's the element that we can't really explain, mm -hmm. you know? And that's what's so fascinating too, because we had on recently, you know, largely considered one of the, if not the top kind of self-defense expert, but he doesn't really teach self-defense. He's really steering, if you actually look into his education, steering people away from the place where they have to ever use self-defense, mm -hmm. right? By using advanced pattern recognition. And he's had the ability to, you know, survey. And of course, like he works, the, the big military companies bring him in and these big events and all this stuff. 
And he's often brought in to teach fear management, mm-hmm. right? And him having this huge database of people who've experienced violent crimes and violent offenses, he said every one of them, you know, we'll just say, you know, maybe 2,000 people, every person without fail has said that they had a bad feeling before mm-hmm. whatever took place. It's just like, how, how do we know? Like, whether it's something good or something not good, there's, there's, there's this kind of hidden element still in science. And even it's the big question too, you know, with consciousness. Like there's so much, and you, I don't know if we, we talked about this before the show, but I know we mentioned this, like there's so much that we don't know. And you're one of those people who've been on the cutting edge because of your choice early on to, to study the microbiome, to study the gut decades before it became in vogue. And now you're sitting in this place of prominence and experience and insight that you're just able to literally funnel this into other people. But we were talking about, again, just how much we still have to discover. And I think it's a dangerous place when we get with science into a place where we think we've got it figured out. Yeah, I mean, just, just briefly coming back, you know, that, that personal example that I told you. So there clearly was a vast database of experience. I've, I've grown up in this house. I've lived there even when I was going to university, you know, for 27 years. I was totally immersed emotionally with my parents and my brother and sister, beautiful environment. All, all these emotional experiences we talked about earlier didn't just happen in my brain. I mean, they were always associated with the gut and probably the microbes, you know, without my knowledge. I had no idea at the time. You actually talk about this in your book about that early life experiences creating that kind of gut brain dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And so that I made a, a brain only based decision overriding all this vast body of information, you know, it was when, when, you, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, really. And some people can do this, you know, like um, if you're only interested in finances or, you know, making money, then you can override this. There's definitely individuals who don't listen to that part of their, you know, they just operate like a computer. Um, our brain is a good prediction machine, you know, for... But the reason that it's affecting me so much is because that vast database is still active, you know, and the emotional effect this has on my, on my mood and had on my, you know, level of depression at the time when I came back indicates how powerful that is, you know, that, that, that all came, all this information came back up and now I have to process it, you know, after the fact. And yeah, and so in terms of science, you know, I think... Um, Good examples of what's happening right now in, in brain science and neuroscience is this whole unexpected resurgence of psychedelics, you know, uh, something that we have suppressed, you know, for, for 50 years. Politicians have suppressed, even though scientists knew better, you know, 50 years ago. And, and now it's coming back and, and we don't really know where it's going to lead us. You know, it certainly opens up parts of the brain that have not been part of our psychiatry or neurology or our disease models. And I think it will happen fairly fast because science is beginning to embrace it, uh, funding agencies, even the NIH, you know, a lot of investors, uh, you know, pouring money into this. So this will fundamentally change, I think, we, we look at our brains and, 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 and how we think about the world. And, you know, so... And with the, with the microbiome, 
I, I think there's still lots of things that we have to learn. I, I would say we're probably around 10% of our knowledge to understand the whole system. A lot of details, technical details, molecular details. But we don't even know how to go from findings in a mouse, and the, the mouse results are all very impressive and revolutionary. We don't even know how to go from there to see does this happen in humans. We don't know that, you know. So I think we're a very early stage of it. And I think there are certain things that have helped even at this early stage that we have a, a very good rationale now of you know, why a healthy diet is important and what kind of diet. You know, it's almost like answered that question. I, I would say a diet that's good for your microbes is good for your body as well. Yeah. You know, there's no question about that. So that eliminates like, you know, a lot of these fat diets. That was actually going to be my next question, which is what are some of the things that we can do proactively? Because you talked about, for example, in your book about early life exposures really helping to kind of set the blueprint for our gut. But this is also extended out throughout our lifetime. What are some of the things for us to proactively expose ourselves to? What are some good exposures for developing healthier microbiome, a healthier gut, and even our gut feelings? What are some of the things that we should get ourselves around and expose ourselves to? Okay, if you stick with the diet part first, that's it's not the only one, but it's a, it's an important one. I mean, that really starts even prenatally. The nutrition of the pregnant mother is a very important point because the, the health of the mother's microbiome has an influence on the state of this low-grade inflammation, which is an influence on the developing fetus and the developing baby. So the so the brain of of the newborn infant is already influenced by what the mother, what diet the mother was on and what lifestyle, uh, you know, what good things the mother did for the gut health and microbial health. Then the first three years of life were the, this shaping of the, the baby's uh, microbiome and the interaction with the immune system, this teaching of the immune system, what's good and bad, which bacteria are good, which are, which are bad. If, we don't want to interfere with that process or interfere as little as, as, as possible with it. So prenatally, postnatally, but then it goes on in the, uh, in the adult. So now we're, we're stuck with a system that's been partially programmed from the mother's side and the, the mother's gut health by the infant's gut health, but it's not completely stuck in that, in that mode. So early on, you know, people said it. So what can I do if I was exposed to antibiotics and an unhealthy diet and was not breastfed? Am I doomed? You know, is, is my health and my gut health doomed for the rest of my life? So initially, people thought, yeah, this is a pretty bad outlook, but it's not, that's not the case. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we can change the gut microbiome in 48 hours by switching the diet within a certain bandwidth. We, we, we can't bring it back to something you know, that hunter-gatherers in Africa or- and Bringing or back certain species. No, we can't, we can't bring it back. There may be species that are at extremely low, almost non-detectable levels that could be nurtured back, you know. And so what we can do to help this process is to go to a diet and always said, you know, it, it's tailored to, 
to the microbes, things that are not absorbed rapidly in our small intestine. Most of our nutrition, modern nutrition, is all focused on let's get you know let's get the carbs in and let's get the protein in and let's get you know the the, the healthy fats in. It's all it's all absorbed small intestine. Nobody thought or talked about well, why not think about let's talk about all the food that goes down to the microbes and the microbes produce these metabolites that like the short chain fatty acids, you know, that are healthy for us. So I think as an adult, main guideline I would say in terms of diet is focus on the foods that we know today, based on the science we know today, are optimal for a healthy ecosystem of our microbes. So these are all the big molecules, the fiber molecules, the the polyphenol molecules, both of which of these categories come from plant-based food. It also had the omega-3 into it and uh, you know a, f- a few other things. But the main components of this largely plant-based diet are the components that our microbes are specialized in and can produce hundreds, thousands of metabolites. Many of them, we don't know what they do. But the ones that we have a lot of information, short-chain fatty acids, sort of like the the aspirin of the body or of the microbial world that we have a system inside of us that produces anti-inflammatory substances that act in the gut in the body in the liver in the heart and in the brain if we nurture that so we have the optimal level of this and we decrease the components that have an, a pro-inflammatory effect like things in, in in certain food items then it's fairly easy. You know, we almost, we almost know the answer today based on the diet. But the diet is not the only part. So the, the microbial ecosystem is also exposed, as we talked about earlier, to these influences from the brain. Your emotions, your positive emotions, mm. your negative emotions. This system only functions optimally if it's not constantly disturbed, per- perturbed by negative emotions. And stress and anxiety and ex- fear, interestingly, have the same negative effect on the health of the, the gut microbiome as an unhealthy diet has. So now you combine those two, which is not atypical in our society. Right, right. And we've talked about this in, in the past as well, that certain socioeconomic segments of our society are particularly affected by this combination, yeah. the, the stress, the negative emotions, and the unhealthy diet. You had the perfect storm for a an unhealthy environment. So, big recommendation: deal with the diet, which is not easy. The cost of it, the availability, and then you know, with teaching mindfulness, making people aware, online programs for you know mindfulness and then uh, emotional hygiene. I, I would say so. I mean, those are the main things that people can do. Now, there's one thing, I've never been a big proponent of supplements, particularly of individual supplements, which, you know, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a nice placebo. But what, what big studies have shown, if people are on a healthy diet that is rich in these polyphenols, so, you know, a plant-based diet, then the benefit from an additional supplement, it was shown in the study of 20,000 people, is not that great. But if you don't have that healthy diet, then you have a significant benefit on cardiovascular health and 
mortality. And so one idea is that maybe it's easier to provide people that are, can, don't have access to these diets um, and have the, you know, the, the, the stressful life that they're dealing with. That's the indication. That's the population. You, you might want to promote selective evidence-based supplements because they don't have it themselves. And it could, it could make a huge influence you know, on, on longevity and mortality. And um, so I would say those two things, I mean, the influences from the brain and the influences through our diet are the two things. Ideally, you want to combine those. You want to have a healthy lifestyle for your gut ecosystem. I think you need to do both of these things. And um, if you are at a very high risk, possibly also genetically, you may want to look at these other modalities, you know, that are, are becoming available, both the supplements, but also, you know, some online programs. There's more and more of these, um, these cognitive behavioral, the mindfulness, the, you know, happiness, like the Yale course that the most successful course ever created about, um, you know, teaching happiness. That's a good example. So you can actually teach people from students to the regular population to create a positive mind state, which will then have this positive effect on, on, the, on your gut health as well. I bet you if they've done a study on not just the, the happiness level of people that have completed this course, but also on their gut symptoms. I'm not sure if that was done. I, I, I doubt it was done. They would have seen a significant effect on that. Huh? Yeah, you, you already know. You already know. Yeah, yeah, I, I sort of know the answer. These things literally feed into each other as well. You know, so having healthier emotions, if we get good social networks, social connections, and we see the integration with food in those circumstances, we tend to make better food choices when we're eating together with family members, for example. And there's studies out of Harvard. There's studies done on you know, children and adolescents. The benefits are there in the data as well. But what happens when we have those healthy social connections and good food? Like we're starting to stack conditions, as you, as you talked about earlier, with the network, that yeah, overall yeah, systems yeah. network. So now this also, the final thing I want to ask you about is kind of getting back into our a piece of our conversation, which is there's still so much for us to know and how certain prevailing paradigms or just kind of standard of care can take hold even when the data changes. And there's a recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine on colonoscopies. Mm. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, there were two studies. You, you sent me one about the antidepressants, you know, the, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And, and I, you know, told you about this, this colonoscopy study. So two examples almost at the same time, they've come out that, that shows you that, that limitation of just relying on, uh, or totally relying and thinking that there's no, it's the gold standard now. So with the, it's done a study on, I think on 80,000 in Scandinavia, on 80,000 people in, in, in Northern Europe with screening colonoscopies. And there's a lot of reasons you could criticize that study because only a fraction of the people that were contacted showed up for the colonoscopy. But if you base the results on the intention to treat, they found, um, yes, there's a small benefit of the colonoscopy screening, certainly not as big as has been, it's been promoted uh, in the U.S. And my colleagues at UCLA have built a career on this promotion and uh, 
so that has shown that the, the, the effect size is actually quite small. You know, that, that people that didn't develop colon cancer or that had surgery or that died from colon cancer was not that greatly affected. Although this is a very cost-intensive procedure. V- very cost-effective uh, procedure and its popularity. I hate to say this as a gastroenterologist, hoping none of my colleagues that you say listens, its popularity was clearly driven by professional societies because it's a huge income bonus for gastroenterologists. You know, I mean, that feeds whole careers and practices and uh, screening colonoscopies and then lowering the age now recently to 45, you know. Right, yeah. Um, and I bet you will be lowered even further because, Absolutely. Yeah. you know, this. So in Europe, the, the, the main screening technique are these DNA tests, these stool tests, which have been improved tremendously. And, you know, I, I think there's going to be, obviously, there's got to be some middle ground, some compromise. If you have high risk factors, family risk of colon cancer, um, if your stool test is, is positive, you should have a colonoscopy. But the screening colonoscopy for everybody, regardless of risk factors, I personally never really believed in that concept, particularly when you hear that almost none of these patients or the programs that go, they go to makes any dietary assessment or recommendation, which is one of the main causes for right. colon cancer. Yeah, exactly. And the it, decreasing age of prevalence to 45 now is because of the diet. You know, it's not, it's not some miraculous thing that's, that's, that's happening. Uh, so that's um, something I, th- I think you have to be careful with these. This is a good example. The, the, the combination of massive uh, commercial interests with scientific concepts, but leaving out a big portion like the diet side. Uh, you know, another example is is with antidepressants. You know, this big study, this meta-analysis of showing that the effectiveness of serotonin system targeted drugs for depression has been exaggerated. I still think there's a lot to be learned of serotonin and serotonin receptor modulation. 90% is in the gut, it's not even in the brain where all these, these psychiatric medications are targeted at. But I think this, and, and you know, antidepressants have saved many, many lives, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. But they've but it, also destroyed some lives too. Yeah, it has destroyed some lives. And um, hopefully we're not getting into the same mistake with now with the, you know, psychedelic enhanced psychotherapy for depression, because that could lead to a similar kind of situation that 10 years later, we realize, wow, this is, you know, it was totally exaggerated. And because um, a lot of people develop depression because it's an appropriate reaction of the brain to the situations that they're in, you know, and uh, it's obviously easier to give a pill than to offer somebody like, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, to help them process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's interesting. That it's almost, it's a coincidence that two papers have kind of addressed mm. two very common prevalent practices in, in medicine that were supposedly based on a lot of science. I mean, a lot of papers have come out of this, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned also when you sent it over to me that, you know, again, less costly things like stool samples that are even becoming more efficient as well can be just as informative as this very 
costly kind of, um, again, standard of care procedure with a colonoscopy. And then like there, is, there are cases where that methodology is absolutely appropriate. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the current structure of things, again, it's just, it's kind of even with statins, like it keeps lowering down same, the, same. the, the, the uh, cholesterol level to where you should be on a statin. And now we're moving back the timeline when you need to go in for colonoscopy. And, you know, again, I can foresee it being 40 very soon here, you know, just keep it moving the, the goal, the goal, the goalposts without. So we're using this methodology to find a problem and then not actually removing the cause if there is a problem. Yeah. That is the problem. That's, that's a problem. You know, and so again, <clears throat> I just appreciate your insight, your experience. You know, you create these wonderful resources for us as well with your two best selling books. Mind Gut Connection, and also the more recent one, looking at the immune system. Oh my goodness. Can you let people know where they can pick up your books and also just get more information? Yeah, so it's the Mind Gut Connection, which is still after six, almost seven years, uh, hovers around the, the Amazon bestseller list, you know, which, which really amazes me how that's possible. And the gut, it's the second one, the Gut Immune Connection, which is in some ways a sequel and an update. You know, it's, it still has a lot about the mind and the brain, but then it identifies the immune system as this main transduction mechanism of these influences that are negative influences created by our diet and by these brain influences, how that then causes disease. And that's where the immune system comes in. And people are now more fascinated, which I find interesting with the mind and the brain than with the immune system at the moment. It sort of comes, you know, it comes in waves. I mean, when the mind-gut connection first came out, it wasn't that popular the first year, you know, and um, sort of create a whole wave of, uh, of interest and enthusiasm and spread to all kinds of levels of, uh, of media and, uh, you know, online programs. Um, so, yeah, so people can go on, 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 on Amazon. Um, mind-gut connection is out on paperback. The Gut Immune Connection, we're working on the paperback edition, which will be updated. And uh, so it's going to be even more, more appropriate for, for readers today. Awesome. We'll stay tuned for that, of course. We'll put the show notes link to all the books and also your website as well. And, you know, again, I truly appreciate your, your insight. You know, especially at a time like this, like you tend to be ahead of the curve because, and for good reason, you know, you've been in this field for what, 40, you're getting close to 40, 40 years. years. Yeah. You know, this is, I mean, really remarkable. We're talking about what's coming up with the microbiome and even this insight that you shared, you know, with the colonoscopies, like this was something that was still prior to the data coming out, like you're, you're just like something is not matching up here, you know? And so I just re really appreciate that. I appreciate your voice. And, you know, can't wait to have you back on again to talk about more. It's always fascinating. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. And, you know, and thanks for the, the comment about this being ahead of the curve. It's a curse and a benefit. You know, the, the curse is you come out with these things and nobody believes it. And, and, and nobody's interested <laughs> in it. Yeah, and yeah. So you have to wait 10 years before, give you another example. You know, like 20 years ago, we started a wellness, a holistic, comprehensive multidisciplinary wellness program at UCLA in the Division of Digestive Diseases. And, you know, we had acupuncturists and psychologists and uh, dietitians, and it was very successful, very popular for the patients. 
but the institution pulled the plug on it, you know, because this is not, you know, it's not gastroenterology. And 25, 30 years later, our division chief was, you know, younger person created a, a very similar program, almost wow. using the, the, yeah. the, the blueprint. But if you imagine, I mean, how you feel. So you did this 30 years ago. Your, the leadership of your institution pulled the plug and dismissed it as, as, as useless. And then you see it 30 years later coming back in full, in, in full speed. So what it is inside of me that does that, you know, I've often wondered about this. I mean, why, why does my, <laughs> it's a concluding comment. So why does my brain do that? You know, make these assessments, predictions, come up with models that are not matching with the, the, the current state of knowledge, or the current state of, of, of acceptance. Maybe it does have to do with the gut, the, the, the mind-gut connection, that there's yeah. something in my gut that interacts with the brain and computes information in a way that other people are not doing it the same way, you know, which goes again with this intuition and uh, knowing things at a, at a gut level rather than just pure at a, at a, at a cognitive level. So yeah. maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so poetic that this is the case, you know, and there's always people who go ahead and, you know, pave the way for us. So, you know, just know that you're appreciated. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure talking to you as, of, as always. Of course. It's totally my honor. Dr. Imran Mayer, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. This is definitely one to share up with your friends and family. You've got to really get this education into more people's hearts and hands. As more and more data is coming out about our standard of care and our healthcare model, for example, with Dr. Mayer mentioning the need for colonoscopies and the potential harms that are being done with that kind of thing and this procedure that's being done in the framing of a routine checkup, but really looking at the necessity for it and the outcomes for it is very different from what is kind of integrated itself into our culture. And so the potential downsides, being able to analyze that, putting it in a, in a proper perspective, but also understanding that we have wonderful advancements in minimally invasive technologies, but also non-invasive things like stool samples to be able to give not just data that's as good, but potentially better data that can then set the tone for in the instances that it's actually necessary having the colonoscopy skill on the table versus it being something that is simply normalized just to do based on age and not based on necessity. And also looking at like this practice being something that is very cost intensive and providing a lot of monetary gain for the system, including the, the folks that are working in it. But this is not to say that our physicians are not doing something that they believe to be, based on their education, what's right for the patient. But what's actually best for the patient, oftentimes, especially again, you look at the outcomes in our culture, are we reducing rates of cancer? Are we reducing rates of heart disease, of diabetes, of autoimmune conditions, of even colon cancer, for example? Well, these things continue to climb. We're not addressing the underlying cause and putting patients in positions of power and working together with their physicians and having this integrated partnership, much like the gut-brain connection, to really assess and put together a plan that is right for that person right now. We have standard of care where it's really a one-size-fits-all model 
And that is so wildly inappropriate, especially for this time in human history, when we understand, we, st we still don't understand the depth of it, but we understand how diverse we really are. And something that might be absolutely amazing for one person can be an absolute poison for another person. And so we're moving towards personalized nutrition, personalized medicine, personalized treatments. But for that to happen, we're going to have to pull back from the standard of care in treating everybody in this cookie cutter fashion and questioning the procedures and the day-to-day -day processes that are taking place in healthcare where the health has been pulled out. And now we have a sick care system where our physicians are oftentimes routinely five to seven minute office visits and doling out medications based on conversations and not actually being able to spend time with patients to find out what's going on in their life, to find out what's going on with their stress, to find out what's going on with their lifestyle that is then manifesting the disease that we're utilizing drugs and surgery to treat instead of removing the cause of the disease. But things are changing. Again, you are part of that change and I appreciate you so very much. Please share this out with your friends and family. Of course, you can take a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram, I'm at Sean Model. I'm at Sean Model on Twitter as well. And I pop in there from time to time. On Facebook, I'm at The Model Health Show. We're just getting warmed up. I promise you, we've got some epic shows, epic world-class guests, powerful masterclasses coming your way very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.